District of Conservation is sponsored by CFACT. To learn more about our sponsor, head over to CFACT.org. Thank you so much for listening. Welcome to District of Conservation. I'm your host, Gabriella Hoffman. This podcast offers a sober examination into all things hunting, fishing, shooting sports, energy, environment, and the public policy surrounding it. And this podcast also specializes in original interviews that you won't hear elsewhere. Here's what I have for you today. Congressman Tiffany, thank you so much for joining my podcast. Gabriella, it's really good to join you here today. Could you describe your background and how you became interested in conservation, especially growing up in a Wisconsin dairy farm and how the great outdoors influenced you and and continues to influence you today? I grew up on a dairy farm in western Wisconsin, you know, typical of that period of time. um, Those big farm families that we had really throughout uh, much of the northern part of the country, but uh, uh, especially in Wisconsin, uh, five brothers, two sisters, and um, it was a great way to grow up, um, milking cows twice a day and, you know, putting hay in the barn and all that other good stuff. So um, it was a it was a great way to grow up and taught great work ethic, teamwork and um, wouldn't trade it for anything. Farming does have a lot to do with conservation, too. And I was actually in your district not too long ago, first time in Wisconsin in speaking at River Falls, uh, University of Wisconsin River Falls, and they heard me speak about, I, I spoke to them about how farming leads to conservation, and I thought it was a really nice area. So you represent a very beautiful area. Wisconsin obviously is known for dairy farms. And you were just appointed earlier this year at the beginning of the 118th Congress to chair the House Natural Resources Subcommittee on Federal Lands. Could you describe what your role is as chair of the subcommittee and what are some of your current priorities? I'm so glad you went to my alma mater, UW-River Falls, to speak. Um, That's where I received an agricultural economics degree, um, really good school. And um, so we on Fed lands have oversight over all federal lands um, here in the United States, and we get lots of interesting issues around that. But I think to your question, Gabriella, the key thing that I always keep in mind is multiple use. We should be able to, we have a long tradition here in America of multiple use on our federal lands, whether it's forestry, mining, um, uh, recreation, you name it. Um, we've always uh, tried to emphasize multiple use. And that's something that I certainly keep in mind as I've taken over the chairmanship here. Could you expand more on some of the priorities of what you guys are focusing on in terms of keeping that multiple use model? So we want to make sure that um, the public has access. And uh, to that point, we're going to be doing a hearing out in the district um, in the next few months where we've seen some limitations on access that have happened by the U.S. Forest Service. And we want to get that turned around. So uh, really, a couple points of emphasis are one, let's make sure that we're giving access to these um, uh, to these properties. Let's make sure that we're utilizing them to their fullest extent, you know, whether it is recreation or whether it's mining, forestry, whatever. Let's make sure we're utilizing it for the benefit of all Americans. Um, Teddy Roosevelt said it so well when the uh, U.S. Forest Service was established. He said, this is, while uh, recreation and preservation of the environment are all really important, the most important thing we will do is provide 
uh, and I paraphrase here, we will provide the wood for homes for Americans. Very prescient stuff, of course, and I know he's invoked a lot. And that leads me to my next question, actually, speaking of multiple use and the mandate. The BLM rule, I know you guys have focused on this at length, the conservation landscape and health rule. Do you think the multiple use mandate is at risk of being endangered under this proposed rule, which reads to me more like a preservationist uh, kind of misleading public use model that they're trying to push uh, to kind of move away from this? Yeah, and I think you hit the nail on the head with the term that you use, preservationist, um, because conservation is not preservation. Conservation is having good management, and that's when we get the best results in terms of allowing that multiple use, but also doing right by the environment. And if we manage, that's when we get um, the best outcomes in terms of the environment. But um this um, proposed rule by the Bureau of Land Management in regards to conservation is uh, really antithetical to the multiple use, uh, the multiple use um, uh, thought that we've had um, that has guided us for decades here in the United States. And um, there, is cert- there are certainly times for preservation, and we do that currently. I don't understand why you'd want to elevate that to the level where we're going to end up we're going to end up for, uh, preserving lands that it will be harmful for them to simply be preserved rather than managed. The National Park Service already does, you know, give or take a, a decent job when it's under good hands in terms of management. That's what's the preservation agency. BLM is not supposed to be preservationist. It's supposed to be largely conservationists, allowing for multiple uses. But I think, according to the Geological Service, I think about 40% of federal lands, uh, maybe in totality, uh, including some BLM land, are already off limits to multiple uses. It's interesting to me, what really infuriated me as a conservationist was the proposal of conservation leases. And we often hear environmental preservationists say they're against the privatization of land, and I was examining this and, and how this bidding system would be created, giving unfair advantages to groups that would displace true conservationists, um, the Natural Resources Defense Councils of the World, the Center for Biological Diversity, others with lots of money, millions of dollars, to displace true conservationists. And they talk about Republicans always wanting to privatize public lands. To me, this seems like a privatization of that, where they would kick people off of these public lands, not allow multiple uses, and also infringe on, you know, your ability to even recreate responsibly on these public lands. How come more scrutiny hasn't been placed on these so-called conservation leases? So we have been doing some oversight in regards to this, but we certainly could do more in regards to the conservation leases. And I see it right in, in my hometown or my home state of Wisconsin. And it's rather interesting because there was recently um, something we all call the stewardship program in Wisconsin, which um, buys up land and takes it off from um, uh, it sets it aside in perpetuity. Why we would do something like that, and, and and actually, Gabriella, this is something that I think we should really study, is having these perpetual easements. I think that 
actually may be illegal, and we should be doing more research into that. Sounds like I'm creating a job for the um, federal lands uh, staff at this point. We should really be studying that uh, because I think that that may be illegal under the laws of the United States of America, that there should not be. I mean, saying you want to do something perpetually um, forever is a long time, isn't it? It is. And yes, there is debate over uh, measures like conservation easements. But also, I think if I'm understanding this correctly, under the Congressional Review Act, because a similar rule was previously deliberated and rejected in Congress and ultimately voided by the former president, they can't pursue a similarly worded BLM rule here. So are you guys going to invoke the Congressional Review Act in Congress um, to to stop this? Because it, it technically is in violation since it's very much mirroring some of the language from the past rule. Well, you are actually ahead of the curve here, Gabriella. I'm glad you bring this up because we're going to do the research. I can't answer your question at this time, but we should do the research into it, and we will do that. I hope you'll get back to us. Absolutely. We'll follow up on that for certain. I want to talk more about forest management. So as we're talking, we keep seeing the news that wildfire smoke from Canada has blanketed much of the East Coast. It's coming back to D.C., on and off. Some reports suggest that we're going to feel kind of like what the Western United States in terms of this very potent smoke uh, from the Canada wildfires, which haven't been stemmed yet, unfortunately. And forest management obviously is a perennial issue. Um, I don't see any proactive forest management coming from this administration. Um, and obviously wildfires are going to continue to rage out West. And, and we've seen some of the pausing of the prescribed burn program last year, which was very controversial for them to even you know, forego doing it, which was asinine in my personal opinion. But do you see any change from this administration in their interest to tackle proactive forest management to combat high intensity wildfires? And what are House Republicans, especially in your committee, planning to do? Any solutions, remedies that they're mulling this this summer, especially? So to answer your question in regards to the administration, no, I do not expect them to reverse course. They may give it lip service, but they are of a preservationist mentality. The um, large um, NGOs, the env environmental groups, th they have control of the White House on these issues. They do not want management. I mean, let me give you a good example. And our chairman of natural resources, um, Bruce Westerman, talks about this frequently. All that has to happen in regards to this, or one of the things that should happen, and the most critical thing that should happen with the sequoias out in California, is to cut some of the undergrowth so that those smaller trees don't serve as a ladder to get up into the crowns of the sequoias. We lost 20% of the sequoias in the last few years, uh, in the only place on earth you find them in California. Lost 20% of them because of improper management. And it's those NGOs that you just referenced that have been fighting in court, oftentimes winning, stopping the proper management where you get some of those smaller trees that have grown up underneath the sequoias and you make sure that you harvest them so that uh, it does not serve as a ladder if you end up with a fire in that area. And we think we've maybe made some um, uh, some inroads there with the Save Our Sequoias bill to do something like that. But it's an example, and some Democrats are coming along with us on that, which is a good thing. But you think about that example, and we should be doing that in force across the United States. 
Canada has the same problem. They are not managing their forests. It is all about preservation under Prime Minister Trudeau and other leaders that they've had here over the last couple of decades, really no different than the United States. And now they're paying the price for it because they have not had good management that deals with those um, um, infested trees that are disease or bug infested that are perhaps laying down on the forest floor, you need to remove those. And we have not been allowed to do that. And that's largely the um, corporate environmental groups that are driving this with their lawsuits. Not only that, I think misdiagnosing what the root causes of high intensity wildfires are, they say it's largely attributable to climate change. I have cited an IOP, it's like IOP sciences, they're a very reputable source. And they have said live fuels are the largest determiner of the intensity of high intensity wildfires. Then you have weather in a distant second, and then climate comes third. So when you misdiagnose this as largely attributable solely to climate, I think that's where they're, they appropriate money differently um, and they use it as kind of a scapegoat to, to scream about a problem but never offer a solution. And when you're misinforming the public about what the root causes are, I think that's why we see a shrugging of responsibilities there. Um, so I know House Republicans are looking to that. So we'll we'll keep tabs on that as well. Similarly, another hot button issue. I just got the email that a uh, Endangered Species Act working group has been formed between the House Natural Resources Committee and the Western Caucus. Perennial issue. We don't seem to have any movement here um, in, in terms of how how long I've been kind of monitoring this issue with the podcast for five, six years. We saw a lot of strides to reform and modernize the Endangered Species Act last administration, but we've seen a lot of those reforms repealed through rulemaking. How does this continue to hamper recovery efforts? And why is there a lack of interest to get more species that have recovered, whether they're endangered or threatened, delisted, especially with the abysmal 2 to 3% recovery rate we've seen? Part of it is that you find that... Um, uh, certain people within the federal agencies, they view it as their species. And so they don't want to do anything that would have that species removed from the ESA. And then, of course, you have the environmental groups that, I mean, it's simply verboten to remove a species from the Endangered Species Act. What I'm greatly concerned about is does, by not removing endangered species when they should be, and we should be celebrating that success. Does it ultimately endanger the Endangered Species Act, where you have people ultimately say, this is not functioning as it should? And that's the cautionary tale I always put out for uh, some of the environmentalists and others, um, is that you're going to endanger the Endangered Species Act by what you're doing. I mean, you take a look at the gray wolf, and it really has become the Hotel California. You may enter, but you may never leave. And that is what is happening. And once again, unfortunately, this goes back to money. They raise so much money off from the wolf with their fundraising appeals, they can't give it up. It's almost like they're addicted to the wolf being on the ESA rather than celebrating and saying, gosh, we've got thousands of wolves now, whereas we had hundreds two, three decades ago, let's celebrate that success. They just can't do it because they're addicted to the money that comes in for their advocacy efforts. They love to fundraise off of what one of my friends in a uh, conservationist in Florida calls it a uh, charismatic megafauna. They're very, very 
easy to fundraise off of, and you don't see any measurable improvement in these charismatic metagafauna, these kind of apex predators, if you will, whether they're gray wolves or grizzly bears, because it is a continued fundraising mechanism that they can use and say it's imperiled, it's it's going to be imperiled for the long haul, and there are these people who are ruining the status, and they at, or they're at risk of going extinct again. But by all measures, let's expand more about the gray wolf conservation efforts going on here. Um, yes, that's probably even the most more politically charged rather than grizzly bears and grizzly bears attack or attract a lot of negative attention as well. But because the gray wolf is very close to domesticated dogs, there is an affinity for it. And a lot of people are animated by emotion, not science when it comes to management here. And they ignore every and all metric that points to gray wolves as a whole as a species being fully recoverable and being eligible for delisting. And I believe there was delisting that occurred last administration and they put a stopgap on that as well. Um, and, and I hunt, I don't have any desire to personally hunt wolves, but I understand the management that is needed or else you kind of have this imbalance in the ecosystem. They prey on livestock. They could attack other wildlife species and, and a lack of a management plan can really severely alter what's happening. I think Minnesota put a permanent a hold on a gray wolf management recently, a neighbor to yours in Wisconsin. So what is happening with gray wolf delisting and recovery efforts, despite some of the misinformation coming about from preservationists? I think um, what you're what you're referencing generally here, Gabriella, is the North American system, which has been so successful of management of wildlife species. And once again, we go back to that term management. We need to manage. And um, Representative Bolbert and I introduced a bill, the Trust the Science Act, and that's exactly what we want to do: is trust the science. Let's return management to the states. Federal government is rarely good at managing. Um, species like this, the states are set up to do it. If you take a look at the example from over a decade ago now, when Montana, Idaho, and I believe it was Eastern Oregon and Washington were given the ability to manage the wolf, they did it just fine. Their, their numbers are doing just fine after a decade out there. It is an example of how this can be done appropriately. Sportsmen want to have wolf on wolves on the landscape, but like any other species, they do need to be managed. And that's what our bill does here is it, um, uh, it allows state management where um, I believe generally they will do a good job. You're right about the Montana case study because I have seen evidence that even with the presence of a hunt, I think as recent as last season, it didn't put the Montana wolf population to extirpation. It wasn't wiped out. It didn't see overall diminishment. It actually bounced out the numbers because people don't know this, but wolves reproduce at highly successful rates and they can replicate obviously with offspring and regenerate very quickly and then more successfully compared to other species. So they, they can easily adapt in, in to different settings and they're highly adaptable. But even in Montana, like you mentioned, um, they didn't completely hunt the wolf to decimation and it's still on track to recovery and 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 balanced overall, even with the presence of a wolf hunt. And I think uh, the game agency said that, yeah, it had no disruption. It's not going to imperil this, the status of the wolf and it's on the track to recovery. And so it does work. Um, and it's unfortunate <laughs> because they see hunting uh, potentially coming and arising from delisting. That's their whole gripes with delisting. That's why they're wholly opposed to it because they see that hunting as a management tool is going to be necessary part of the equation 
to do that. So yeah, I know it's controversial, but I, I really encourage the listeners to look at more into your bill, really look into the science because it, again, if you don't have any management, it causes a lot of chaos on the landscape. I want to shift gears a little bit. You may cover this. I know the committee has weighed in on this, um, but the administration in my estimation and kind of my examination into some of the rulemaking they're doing, they're going after recreational fishing and offshore and then even onshore. And then including um, hunting, limiting hunting opportunities on public lands through very innocent sounding things like lead phase outs or misguided vessel speed rules on the coast, whether it's the Atlantic or Gulf of Mexico. What are congressional Republicans in committee doing to preserve public lands and public water access against these attacks coming from regulation? We have a real good bill that we passed out of the Natural Resources Committee, Protecting Access for Hunters and Anglers Act, and it stops the Department of Interior and USDA from prohibiting or regulating the use of lead ammunition or tackle on federal land or water. We've seen this real attack on uh, in regards to lead. And um, we need to make sure that um, sportsmen are able to go out there and participate because, uh, once again, by having appropriate management of our wildlife species, that's how we get benefit for both um, sportsmen, but also for the environment. And that's exactly what we're trying to do here is um, make sure that hunters and anglers have access to being able to participate in the sports that they love to do. And if that kind of cohesiveness is interrupted, you risk endangering the funds, the millions, if not billions of dollars, most recently billions of dollars that have been annually generated by both Dingle Johnson Amendment Act uh, pertaining to fishing and also uh, Pittman-Robertson Act funds, which are generated from hunting and shooting sports. And people don't understand what's at stake when you do that, when you interrupt that, even with something as innocent sounding as a lead phase out, because that's not what they just stop at. They go after other forms of hunting or suppress your ability to use other types of tools, which could certainly eat at um, conservation funding as a whole. I want to also ask you about something I also want to ask you about good bipartisan outdoor bills on the horizon, because I know bipartisan is a very dirty word. Oftentimes it's used incorrectly, but I have seen some bills that are not controversial, that don't raise the debt or deficit, that are pretty agreed to by both Republicans and Democrats. So is there any good bipartisan outdoor legislation on the horizon? We've had a few things that have um, been going through committee. One is the Military and Veterans in Parks Act that was introduced by Representative Kiggins from uh, Virginia. And it's meant to improve access and opportunities for our veterans on federal lands. I think that's really important. We also have um, the Range Access Act. It directs the secretaries of interior and agriculture to identify and establish new sh target shooting ranges. And this would be a really good way to go about it because uh, sometimes the, uh, you have vast expanses of federal land, which is the best place to have a shooting range when it's away from population centers. And then we also have the Simplifying Outdoor Access for Recreation Act by Representative Curtis from Utah, and it's intended to reduce the cost and complexity of recreating on federal lands. So it puts a few, uh, a few provisions in regarding special recreation permits for individuals and groups. It just makes it easier for people to be able to get out there and be able to use these terrific natural resources that we have that are in our parks and national forests and other places that um, are controlled by the federal government. We have a system unlike any other. You don't find that 
plentiful amounts of public land elsewhere across the world. So we're really lucky. And that land should be utilized. It doesn't mean you're going to be destroying it. It means simply even just going to recreate, going to hike, going to fish, going to hunt, and being able to enjoy these abundance of beautiful public lands, natural resources that are at our disposal and that we want to help steward and and keep in continuity. I want to conclude by asking you this, Congressman. Um, I often say on the show that conservation is conservative. I've seen that line replicated elsewhere too. I didn't coin it, but it's kind of cool to see more and more people use that term because it is. We care about stewarding resources as conservatives. We don't want to leave things worse off than we found them. How can conservatives better articulate support for true conservation, whether it's supporting Dingle Johnson, Pittman Robertson, upholding these traditions like hunting, fishing, uh, camping, biking, hiking? So so what can Republicans do to promote that better, in your opinion? So if it's not multiple use land, then it's not public land. And I think we really need to emphasize that this is the public's land and we can do we can do all of the above out, uh, on our public lands. And I think it's really important to emphasize that. But we need to tell the stories. We need to tell the stories both in terms of the negative that by not managing our federal forests as we should have, um, that is what has led to these massive forest fires. That's what's burned down communities. That's what's threatened our sequoias. I think that gets people's attention when it's actually the lack of management. It's simply using a preservationist mode, which has created these problems. And we need to continue to tell those stories about how management is good and leads us to the outcomes that you want to have these these rich places with biological diversity and such, you get that by management because the landscape is ever-changing and we can work within that. If we simply try to preserve, if we simply try to preserve, we will end up with a worse outcome and you can see it, especially with the massive fires that we've had. I'm very concerned about rewilding efforts, which are billed as conserva- or billed as conservationists, but are truly preservationists, because you can never restore nature to its truly natural state, uh, pre, you know, preceding us, preceding settlement in the United States. It's impossible. So we have to work with what we have now. Humans are part of the landscape. We're a positive influence more than we are a negative influence. And that's where true conservation comes in. Congressman Tiffany, where can my listeners connect with you and learn more about what's happening in committee, specifically your subcommittee? First of all, you can just go to at Rep Tiffany if you want to check out uh, what we're doing in my office. But then just go to the Natural Resources Committee, Federal Lands, and you will find us there and all the work that we're doing. We have a terrific staff, and we are always working on issues to be able to allow greater access for the American public and let's and doing right and, and doing the right thing for conservation so all of us as Americans benefit from it. Well said. Yes, the committee has done excellent. I've been very impressed by what you guys have been putting out. I've followed committee staff for many, many years, even in public policy. And rest assured, hunters and anglers, true conservationists have allies in Washington. And I think the committee, yourself and others, are representative of that. So thank you, Congressman Tiffany, for joining the podcast and sharing what's going on in Capitol Hill. Well, great to join you today and continue your good work delivering the message. Thanks for listening to today's episode. Make sure you're connected to us on social media, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And also on your preferred player, we recommend Apple Podcasts, where you can leave us reviews if you really like the content. 
share the podcast with friends who may be interested in learning more about what's trending in conservation and the related industries that entangle with it and sometimes work against it as well. Thanks for listening to the show and stay tuned for the next episode.